Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. If you visit California's Central Coast, you'll find this recurring image all over the place. It's on postcards, paintings, t-shirts, even the logo for breweries and coffee shops. It's this image of a huge mound of rock sticking up out of the ocean. It might look like just a rock, but it's deeply meaningful to people in the coastal city of Morro Bay, especially to local indigenous tribes. And so the people would pray here, they would gather here, they would um, hold ceremony, they would go on vision quests, they would send their loved ones into the next world here. I'm Sasha Coca. Today on the California Report magazine, we're going to visit Morro Rock and hear about a ceremony to return some of it to the tribes who've considered it sacred for thousands of years. Today on our show, we'll also hear about a sewing nonprofit that's challenging racism in the craft world. You know, that's really not our problem. Well, we're here to sew, be quiet about politics. And how a purple beam of light is uniting giddy basketball fans in Sacramento. But first, let's head to Morro Rock. When Spanish colonizers first saw that 600-foot-tall rock sticking up out of the ocean, they named it Morro, which has a lot of meanings in Spanish, but it can mean snout or small hill. That name stuck. But it also has other, more ancient names, Lisamu to the Shumash tribes and Lesamo to the Salinan tribe. In the 18 and 1900s, though, it became building material. The Army Corps of Engineers blasted 250,000 tons of Morro rock. They used it for buildings all over San Luis Obispo County and to create a breakwater that protects the shore from ocean storms. They even used it to build the road to the rock itself, which used to be an island. Morro rock is very symbolic of how our people were blown up and they're separated. But now some of that quarried rock is returning to its source through the efforts of local tribes. Benjamin Perper, a reporter with KCBX in San Luis Obispo, takes us to reunite the rock. It's a ceremony of healing and inclusion at the base of Morro Rock. It's a hot morning at the base of Morro Rock. The rock itself is so tall that its peak is often shrouded in fog, even when the land and sea below aren't. But not today. And that's for the best, because it gives me a clear view of the wooden boats headed to shore. They're called tamals, traditional wooden canoes used by indigenous peoples up and down the California coast. They're being rowed by Shumash men, some wearing clothes and accessories from their tribal heritage. 
Women from the tribe are on the shore to greet the rowers as they land. They break out into cheers, and so does everyone else gathered here. Even someone's dog picks up on the joy. The boats are hoisted on shore. It's a group effort. The boats have special cargo, pieces of Moro rock itself, long since quarried and used to build the nearby breakwater at Port San Luis. The stones are small compared to the rock itself and light enough to be carried. And that's the plan here, carrying the rocks back to where they came from more than a century ago, to Lisamu, the Shumash name for Moro rock. Michael Kisarati with the Coastal Band of Shumash lays it out. When we planned this, we thought, wouldn't it be great if instead of some one person taking all those rocks, which is a lot of rocks and they're heavy, uh, what if we uh, bring all, all of us together and form a human chain from the tamales and bring them up from the beach and put them back on Lisa Moo together. So how do you like that? Does that sound like a good idea? Over a hundred people line up from the shore to the base of Moro Rock. It's not just Shumash members, it's onlookers, tourists, Morro Bay residents, the dog, even I'm tempted to put my audio gear down and join. I don't, but it takes some self-control. The joy is infectious. <laughs> Tribal members on the beach pass the rock fragments from hand to hand up to the rock. They're carefully placed in a small clearing past the do not enter or climb sign, which normally would stop people like me from intruding on sensitive shrubbery, bird habitat, and of course, sacred rock. But today, for the first time, I'm allowed to pass that sign and get face to face with the ancient volcanic rock. I can't help but put my hand on it. I might not get that chance again. Uh, we're gonna start gathering around the fire here. When the rocks from the tamales are reunited with Lisamu, it's time for a ceremony. We have a special blessing. We have our fire here. Tribal members place tobacco and sage onto a small fire, while the rest of us gather in a circle around them. Violet Sage Walker pulls out necklaces from a box draped in colorful fabric. They're made of soapstone in the shape of Moro rock. A rock for a rock. And this is a rock effigy of Moro rock, Leisamu. And it represents our rock and our ocean and our people and our food and our energy and our love. Let's get you all wearing one right now. Violet is the chairwoman of the Northern Shumash Tribal Council, which organized this gathering to bring the various Shumash tribes together. Although only a few rocks recovered from the breakwater made it back to their original home, it was symbolic of a longer process of healing and reconciliation. It started in 2017, when the Army Corps of Engineers began looking at repairing the Port San Luis breakwater. They approached Violet's father, Fred Collins, a well-known local leader who chaired the council before her. My dad had told me about seven years ago that the Army Corps of Engineers reached out to him and asked him, you know, what to do with Morro Rock. The rock that was at the breakwater in Avila is being repaired, and it's all Morro Rock. Her dad said, I want it back, literally. He wanted them to be put back together. <laughs> I, I imagine him thinking that they're going to, like, you know, glue the rocks back together. <laughs> Glue or not, the Army Corps soon decided that putting the rock back together wasn't actually possible. They believed the parts of Moro rock used in the breakwater couldn't be removed, until 2021, when they found a way to separate some of the smaller rocks. By that point, Violet's father had passed away and wasn't around to jump on the opportunity. But she was. 
seven years later, like two days before his memorial, they called me and asked me if we still wanted the rocks. And I said, absolutely. The Army Corps cooperated with the Shumash tribes to plan the reunion, and it finally began last year. Violet describes Reunite the Rock as spectacular, seeing everyone participate in one big community gathering. She says her late father was watching. And my dad was just laughing at us. He's like, see, you guys had to move all these rocks now. (laughs) As joyous as the event was, she says there was plenty of pain along with it. Despite the Army Corps' gesture, Lisa Moo will never be what it was. She says it's a constant reminder of a violent history. You know, it's very symbolic because Morrill Rock was blasted right about the same time that California had issued a bounty on Native people. And almost a million Native people in California were killed during the 1880s. And the governor of California had paid like 25 cents a head for Native people. And that's, you know, state-sanctioned execution of our people. It's an ugly history, and one that won't be washed clean by a ceremony. But Violet says she has reason to be hopeful because the Shumash and other indigenous tribes now have a seat at the table when decisions are made. Not just on this, but also massive renewable energy and conservation projects coming to the central coast, like offshore wind and a new marine sanctuary. Still, it's complicated. You know, it's a double-edged sword. It's like bittersweet. These people, my ancestors, people that have suffered so much, weren't here to see things like this happen. But that it hopefully it'll be easier on the next generation that they won't have to go through some of the things that we've gone through. Thinking back on that ceremony, the thing that stuck with me the most was the human chain and Michael Kisarati's invitation for everyone, not just the Shumash, to join in. I think it's totally appropriate because uh, nothing good happens w- without community. Nothing really good happens without teamwork and without inclusiveness. Reunite the Rock was an acknowledgement of the racist and violent history built into the foundation of this area. Quite literally, with pieces of the sacred rock used to construct our roads, our buildings, and our breakwater. Returning those few small rocks now may be symbolic, but it's also a small step towards healing. And they'll be there, I think, for a long, long time. And whenever you go by there in the future, you come back to visit Lisa Mu, you can kind of glance over there. And if you're so inclined, you can say a little prayer or a little word, you know, and remember this day. That story came to us from KCBX reporter Ben Perper in Morro Bay. going to meet someone who was a bit of a crafting marvel when she was a kid. Sarah Trail was just four years old when she started helping her mom sew. She published a book of sewing projects when she was 14, and on weekends she would travel around the country teaching classes. At 17, the Disney Channel featured her in a segment about entrepreneurial kids. My name is Sarah, and I love to sew. Now I teach people how to sew. But after a few years of teaching, Sarah began to ask questions. Mom, why is there never any black kids in these classes? Mom, why can't it be free? She'd be like, well, Sarah, capitalism. That answer didn't sit well with Sarah. She asked craft stores if they would offer her classes on a sliding scale. None of them agreed. Because if you can't afford sewing now, you won't become a customer. 
Even though there's a deep tradition of quilting and crafting in a lot of black communities, many craft stores and sewing spaces these days cater primarily to white customers. Amanda Stupai brings us the story of how Sarah trails challenging the sewing world to become a more inclusive place. Before she even graduated high school, Sarah Trail had accomplished what many artists never do. She was getting paid for her craft. But it was becoming clear that the companies paying her did not share her values. It all came to a head when Trayvon Martin was shot in 2012. Sarah identified with Trayvon. They were both black teenagers, their birthdays only weeks apart. And I remember entering the space and I was like, oh, how's your weekend? And I'm like, y'all, Trayvon just got killed. What are we going to do? Sarah showed up at a quilting class ready to take action. But many of her fellow quilters didn't understand why Sarah was so affected by Trayvon's death. After all, she didn't even know him. Others simply refused to talk about it. You know, that's really not our problem. Well, we're here to sew. We paid $150 for this class. Be quiet about politics. Sarah sewed a portrait of Trayvon Martin, based on the now famous black and white photo of him in a hoodie. Here, Sarah speaks to a crowd gathered for the city of Sonoma's first Juneteenth celebration, held in 2022. It was the first quilt that I made where I'm not trying to teach everyone to make this quilt. I made this quilt so we can talk about it because there's an issue that's being silenced in this quilting community. But people did not celebrate this quilt like they had Sarah's other projects. And in that moment, I felt really shunned by an industry that I had given not only so much of my youth, my childhood, but really my love to. That fall, Sarah began college at UC Berkeley. She still sewed, but her focus had shifted. Instead of mastering traditional patterns, her art took an activist bent. When she taught, it was at school she visited as part of her education coursework. And I think that was a moment of like, I need to spend my time better. And if I'm gonna make stuff, it needs to have a bigger message than just being beautiful. If I'm gonna teach stuff, it needs to have a bigger message than just learn the technique. The summer after she graduated, Sarah founded something called the Social Justice Sewing Academy. It started out as a six-week course for local teenagers. So I was like, I want to teach kids how to sew. But not just any kids. She wanted to work with young people who wouldn't normally apply to a college program or even think about quilting. We had kids on angle monitor. We had kids who, you know, were sagging, cussing. They're like, I never thought I'd be at a UC Berkeley summer thing. The students read about identity, social movements, and textile artists. She says it was pretty academic. And there was definitely resistance to sewing at first. But by the third or fourth day, they really got into it. And instead of leaving the classroom for their one-hour lunch break, like they were encouraged to do, they would stay and we would have music and they'd eat their lunch in there and be working on their quilt. Like, oh, no, I've got things I've got to do. And it was, it was really cool. I think especially to see the guys get so hooked to it. Now, six years later, the Social Justice Sewing Academy offers shorter workshops at schools, detention centers, and public events. So an important thing with community quilts is everybody makes one block, and a community quilt has 20 blocks. Sewing an entire quilt can take weeks. So these students at the Sonoma Juneteenth celebration designed just one quilt block, basically a section of a quilt. So as you think about getting fabric, um, think about like at minimum 10 fabric. Thomas Hines explains to the group that their block is inspired by people who identify as trans or non-binary. They often don't receive burial services that reflect their identities. I'm going to have the trans flag colors on the stripes of the hand. And then she's pulling the cross off of the coffin because a lot of trans folks are usually forced to have religious funerals, even though they may not align with that. Um, and then also the other side is claw marks on the coffin. And Over then, time, the act of sewing has become less important in these workshops. Expression is paramount. 
So today, students put their blocks together with glue. And then that goes off to an embroidery artist. That this is Stephanie Valencia. She volunteers with Sarah at the academy. She says there's a team of experienced quilters lined up to turn these glued creations into sewn quilts. That is in a completely different class divide. A different generation has had different experiences. Artists like Thomas write reflections about their blocks, including instructions, like the clawing fingernails should be embroidered. So like Thomas's block here will probably go to an individual who has very, has almost no affiliation um, to non-binary or trans community. They'll get the artist statement and they sit with that and really let it resonate. And because She says the Social Justice Sewing Academy functions like an intergenerational sewing circle, a multiracial one, bridging the divide between the artists who design the blocks and the quilters who finish them. After workshops like the one in Sonoma, blocks are brought here to a sewing day at the Cloth Carousel, a fabric shop in Vacaville. We're doing what we call sashing. Martha Wolf is today's unofficial leader. Using big pieces of paper, post-it notes, and math, she plans out how the blocks get sewn together to become a community quilt. So this is the pattern that I make. They're all color-coded. We have Martha is white and was one of the Social Justice Sewing Academy's first volunteers. She's 67 and got involved because she's interested in what young people have to say. I also felt it was important to give voice to those who aren't necessarily listened to. Quilt blocks are taped along the wall in a grid. It's a colorful assortment of artistic styles and social issues. There's a pink uterus with My Body, My Choice spelled out in red. Green dollar bills with the message, student loans never truly vanish. I'm just going to keep on sewing, and at some point we'll run out of fabric, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or energy. Marcia Carey likes coming to these sew days. She just finished a block with a drama mask, a trumpet, and a paint palette. And what I've done is to just simply embroider around the edge and do a little bit of embellishment to kind of tidy up the edges and make it look good. Marcia says this block is more cheerful than most. It's about funding arts education. But they often deal with violence. And when I work on them, I'm, I'm thinking about what this person was thinking. And often I'm thinking that many of these people died for no good reason. I mean, that's what a lot of the pieces that I work on are about. And so it's, it's kind of emotional. Not all quilters are as willing to be challenged as Marsha. Much of the sewing world is dominated by older, white women, creating spaces that are sometimes unwelcoming, if not outright racist. I have actually been mixed up with other, um, other Black women <laughs> who do similar work, uh, including in a class that I was teaching and somebody... This is Jen Hewitt. She's a printmaker and designer. She's written several craft-related books. I didn't really see myself represented in any of the mainstream portrayals of who practices these crafts. Um, Her latest book is called This Long Thread, Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. As research for the book, she asked women of color about their experiences in craft spaces. I was kind of floored because the responses were pretty consistent across the board. Of people women describe being the only crafters of color at events being followed in fabric stores because the workers thought they were going to shoplift. And one woman said she was even kicked out of her quilting group. 
she was not allowed to talk about the alt-right march in Charlottesville, of which she was one of the targets, <laughs> you know, and she was not allowed to talk about that at a quilting event when people asked her how she was, and she was uninvited because she talked about it. Stephanie Valencia, the program coordinator, says she can hardly believe how some people treat Sarah Trail, the Social Justice Sewing Academy's founder, at quilting events. Like, I'd be sitting next to somebody, like, on this long bench, and as soon as Sarah would come over, people literally got up and left. Or I would be talking to people, and I'd be like, hey, this is our founder, Sarah, come on over, and they would take one look at her and just walk away. The sewing world has given Sarah plenty of reasons to leave, but she's not willing to give up. She believes in the power of activist quilts, and making them helps her feel connected to her family and Black culture. I think the industry's not going to change unless we try to change it. The quilting world is at a crossroads. On one hand, the Social Justice Sewing Academy's work is celebrated. One of their quilts is on view at the Clinton Presidential Library in Arkansas. Lots of quilting groups want Sarah to come speak. But on the other hand, a lot of crafters still insist that they don't want politics in their hobby. While you choose to opt in or opt out, black bodies can't do that. The ability to separate is such a privilege, I wish I had it too. When politics impact your everyday lived experience, you're going to care more. That story was brought to us by KQED reporter Amanda Stupai. You can see photos of some of the Social Justice Sewing Academy quilts and learn about their Remembrance Project, which honors lives lost to violence, at calreport.org. And now to Sacramento, where a beam of light is the thing that's bringing people together. It all has to do with long-suffering basketball fans who feel like they finally got a reason to celebrate. KQED's Bianca Taylor has this story of how the Sacramento Kings are exceeding expectations this season. To understand why Sacramento Kings fans are so excited right now, you have to understand how hard it's been for us. The Kings have failed to qualify for a playoff for 16 years straight, making them not only the worst team in the NBA— but the worst team in major American sports. And this is a league where over half the teams make the playoffs. So to be bad at that level for a decade and a half through two ownership groups is a really impressive level of ineptitude. That's Patrick Redford. He's a staff writer at Defector Media and a lifelong Kings fan, even if it doesn't make total sense. You know, by any sort of rational metric, I should have just become a Warriors fan at some point because I could be happy. But like, this is sort of what sports fandom is all about. It's just sort of about representing where you're from. But this year, the Kings have shocked Patrick and everyone else by actually being good. They're playing great basketball. They seem to have good chemistry. They have like a good coach for the first time in 16 years. Um, You know, we don't need to have a statistics talk here, but all the numbers say they're actually better than their record is. And... Also, there's there's the beam. You gonna light this beam? Let's do it. Let's let them light the beam. The beam. Four lasers that shoot a purple beam of light into space from the top of Golden One Center in downtown Sacramento. The beam was first lit in October 2022 after being cleared by the Federal Aviation Administration. 
A few weeks later, the Kings took off on a seven-game winning streak. So now, the beam lights up the sky after every Kings victory, at home or away. They were playing in Los Angeles, and they were up big on the Clippers in the fourth quarter, and you could hear chants in that building, on the road. Light the Beam has become a citywide rallying cry, and it's everywhere in Sacramento, from T-shirts to socks to the Light the Beam IPA. For a brief moment, the Beam was even listed as a place of worship on Google Maps. And according to Patrick, it's not only Sacramento that's swept up in this Beam madness. I mean, the Kings are probably the feel-good story of the season, and that's coincided with the Beam. And so you see, anytime the Kings win on Twitter or online, you'll see people referencing it, uh, celebrating the Beam being lit. There are still months to go before the playoffs, and if anyone knows not to get overly optimistic, it's us Kings fans. I went to a game in December hoping to see the Beam for myself, but they lost to the Denver Nuggets. Still, it's hard not to hope that this success and energy will get the Kings into the NBA playoffs for the first time since I was 16. And as long as they do make it in, it almost doesn't matter how well they do. If they make it into the playoffs and get swept by 25 points a game, people will be so happy. Honestly, it's just really nice to watch like a regular basketball team for once and just not feel like a joke. Regardless of how the season ends, it's undeniable that the Kings or the Beam Team, as they've now been trademarked, have made sports history again. But this time, it's in a way Kings fans can actually be proud of. With three words, light the beam. For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in Sacramento. Coming up next week on our show, we mark the 75th anniversary of one of the deadliest plane crashes in California history. Back in 1948, an airplane took a nosedive in the Las Gatas Canyon in the Central Valley. On board were 28 Mexican braceros who were being deported from Oakland to the Mexican border. The bodies of the white pilot, stewardesses, and immigration agent were all sent home to their loved ones. And the remains of the Mexican passengers were pushed into an unmarked mass grave in Fresno's Holy Cross Cemetery, never to be heard from again. To add insult to injury, the newspaper reports uh, mentioned the name of the American crew members, but didn't name the Mexican passengers, only referred to them as deportees. You won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. And all they will call you will be deportees. The unnamed deportees inspired Woody Guthrie to write a song called Deportee, Plane Rack at Las Gatas Canyon, sung here by his son Arlo Guthrie and Pete Seeger. It shook all our hills. And who are these friends all scattered like dried leaves? The radio says they are just deportees. That song hung in the air for 60 years until the son and the grandson of migrant farm workers born and raised here in the San Joaquin Valley decided, I want to answer that question, who are these friends? Those deportees remained anonymous until poet and author Tim Z. Hernandez started tracking down their families decades later. My name is Michael, my last name is Rodriguez. I was eight months old when my Aunt Maria uh, died on that plane crash. Next to her, they found a bag of blue baby clothes. I was eight months old at the time, 
and it pretty much became a fact that those clothes were probably coming to me in Mexico. Unfortunately, they never made it. Tune in next week to hear how families affected by the crash are finally getting closure 75 years later. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Our producer director is Susie Racho. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And Jessica Carissa is our intern. And I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.